Welcome to the 15th episode of Heavier Than I Look, a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira Russo, and I'm your host. If you feel listening to this podcast may aggravate your suffering or complicate your recovery, please take this notice as a trigger warning. Discuss with your support system as necessary, and as always, take what you need and leave what you don't. This episode is dedicated to finding and taking space to heal. I encourage anyone listening to take the space that you need, separate from the responsibilities of our daily lives and devoted to self-care. You are worthy of space dedicated to yourself. This is also not something you should ever apologize for, as it can be imperative in healing. Be intentional in deciding to take the space that you need. It is not selfish. It is not wrong. It is not negligence. In fact, it is where healing is found and peace is inspired. Take up space. You deserve to. Today's episode is an important one. We've discussed in the past that eating disorders do not discriminate. They affect those of all genders, ages, races, religions, ethnicities, sexual orientations, body shapes, and weights. Now we must refine that statement. No one is immune to eating disorders, yes, but there are those who are barred from eating disorder diagnosis and treatment and thus never access necessary healing. Eating disorders can reach anyone, yes, but eating disorder treatment does not. Society's understanding of eating disorders is generally inflexible. Cultural messaging, such as that motivated by media and film, perpetuate an ED stereotype. You must be a white, young, thin, affluent female to be deserving of an eating disorder. You also must exist in this identity to recover from an eating disorder. This myth reduces EDs to one story, which is unrepresentative of all of those that struggle. Unfortunately, because of this false belief, white, young, thin, affluent females usually become the subjects of research and treatment strategy, as they are those assumed to have the assets necessary for sufficient resources in recovery. Only 20% of those diagnosed with eating disorders are actually getting treated for them. Of the 30 million people in the United States who have been diagnosed with an ED, 24 million individuals have not received proper treatment. These statistics, even more frighteningly, exclude those who have not been clinically diagnosed with an eating disorder. I am one of those individuals. I'm no statistician, but I suspect that 30 million would dramatically increase if we were to account for those never diagnosed or those who don't meet the rigid, triggering, and reductive diagnostic criteria as featured in the DSM-5. Never being formally or properly diagnosed with an eating disorder, I am not included in the 30 million, nor in the 6 million who have received advisable treatment. If you don't carry with you an ED diagnosis, your pain and suffering is just as valid as those who do. Because of my personal experience, removing the barriers that impede ED diagnosis 
and accessible treatment is something I'm fighting for. There shouldn't be barriers in wanting to heal. And unfortunately, healing is oftentimes dependent on a diagnosis. EDs undoubtedly have a homogenous recovery population, one that does not reflect the diversity and difference in ED survivors. The racial stereotypes stitched into the image of EDs influence who we believe is vulnerable or invulnerable to the disorder, ultimately affecting potential detection by family, peers, and clinicians. Non-white populations are expected to be inoculated from eating disorders. Unfortunately, there is still little research intersecting non-white populations with EDs, which makes enacting inclusionary change more difficult. Quote, the prevalence of reported eating disorders with the exception of anorexia nervosa is similar among non-Hispanic whites, Hispanics, African-Americans, and Asian-Americans in the United States, end quote. However, research indicates that despite cultural differences in celebrated physicality, incidences of eating disorders in Hispanic and Latinx or African-American and Black-American populations is comparable to those in white populations. For example, the prevalence of bulimia nervosa is found to be greater in Latinx populations than in non-Latinx white populations. Further, binge eating disorder is found to have comparable rates between Latinx and non-Latinx white populations. The incidence of bulimia nervosa and binge eating is found to be greater in African-American and Black-American populations when compared to white behavioral counterparts. It is important to note that no country or study is a monolith, so these statistics may vary, but overall, it is clear that eating disorders appear in a wide variety of populations and peoples. It may be assumed that because of the varying ideals of female physicality and culture, such as those among Latinx or Black Americans, the potential for eating problems is impossible among women of color. This is a false assumption, erroneously used to reduce the experiences of those outside of the dominant ED stereotype or image. It is an overgeneralization extrapolated from a cultural appreciation for size diversity presumed to come from those non-Western societies. Because of Westernization and acculturation, women of color can be tremendously affected by the demands of thinness. Quote, for women who are developing bodies that will most likely never assimilate into the mythical monochrome of middle America, there's very little validation available in the media or anywhere else add the deluge of imagery that associates beauty with whiteness, and girls of color are primed not only to developing eating disorders, but also to see these disorders go untreated." End quote. Western ideals of thinness, which we've discussed thoroughly prior in episode five, which is entitled Culture as an Ideological Factor in EDs, can effectively bleed and infect other cultures and can become a predisposition to restrictive or purging compensatory behavior. The thin ideal is internalized, and although this shows up differently across varying cultures, the susceptibility to body dissatisfaction and drive for thinness can be equally dangerous. These symptoms lead to EDs but often are undetected. Research has found that children of immigrants in the first and second generation are at higher risk of body dissatisfaction and dieting restrictive behaviors after westernization. Quote, given that 
all cultures do not emphasize slimness to the extent that American culture does, the discrepancy between the body of the immigrant and the American ideal can serve to increase the sense of alienation and non-belonging to the new society, end quote. Racial and ethnic minority groups such as Hispanic and Latinx Americans, African Americans, Native Americans, and Asian Americans essentially become a blind spot in ED research, diagnosis, and recovery. Yet this blind spot, yet this blind spot can become lethal. As mentioned before, EDs have the second highest mortality rates of all psychiatric disorders, resulting in one death every 52 minutes. It is also important to mention that eating disorders demand attention. Just as pain demands to be felt, eating disorders must be validated and recognized if the individual is to be healed, which is why treatment is incredibly important. Recovery from an eating disorder is gradual yet not linear. It often involves a qualified team of professionals in addition to support from the individual's inner circle of family and friends. Recovery is also individualized and can prove a widely different experience from one person to the next, especially if the eating disorders being treated differ. I also am a big believer that an eating disorder is not something that can simply be fixed. It is instead something that requires a dismantling of compulsive thought and action, a re-examination of self and societal ideals, and ongoing trial and error. Eating disorder treatment is complicated, which is why access to ED treatment must be as uncomplicated as possible. Unfortunately, as of today, eating disorder treatment often presents many obstacles, especially for those who exist at higher weights, are racial ethnic minorities, are socioeconomically disadvantaged, or don't identify as female. These vulnerable populations may not recognize their own need for treatment. They may never be properly screened and or they may never be referred to treatment. Treatment may also be barred because of limited financial or insurance coverage. ED treatment includes several varying levels of care. Inpatient often involves a hospitalization of the individual. Residential includes an in-home 24-7 recovery program. Both inpatient and residential require medical instability for insurance coverage excluding those who may not be physically compromised but are psychologically compromised. The next highest level of care is known as partial hospitalization, where the individual has during the day treatment and goes home at night. Intensive outpatient treatment includes several group counseling programs during the week, in addition to other more individualized support. Finally, in outpatient treatment, the ED survivor will work exclusively with a therapist, dietitian, and psychiatrist. Medicare and Medicaid only cover inpatient and outpatient. Occasionally, they'll cover partial hospitalization, but this makes it nearly impossible for a continuity of care within the different levels of treatment. Further, private insurance may prematurely stop coverage of certain treatment, resulting in an unstable and unreliable treatment process. Insurance companies only cover evidence-based care, which becomes precarious considering that most of the evidence of effective treatments is researched on young, white, anorexic subjects. This treatment is not culturally informed or inclusive. ED treatment as covered or not covered by insurance deserves its own episode as the application is so complex and sophisticated, so please be on the lookout for that in the future. 
there are also a number of deep-seated implicit biases that may prevent accessibility to treatment. Oftentimes, the multiple layers of marginalization an individual may experience are not reflected or accounted for by their medical providers. In one study, when healthcare providers were presented with identical case studies demonstrating disordered eating symptoms in white, Hispanic, and Black women, clinicians were asked to identify the woman's eating behavior as problematic. Only 44% of the clinicians identified white behavior as problematic, only 41% of the clinicians identified Hispanic behavior as problematic, and finally, only 17% of clinicians identified Black behavior as problematic. Every statistic in these results is frightening. Less than half, more significantly in some cases than others, of women with disordered eating symptomology were identified as problematic, with white behavior being most likely to be properly identified. Most frighteningly, however, is that only 17% of disordered eating behavior in the Black population of this study were identified by the clinician. Quote, people of color with self-acknowledged eating and weight concerns were less likely than white participants to have been asked by healthcare providers about eating disorder symptoms, despite similar rates of eating disorder symptoms across ethnic groups, end quote. No wonder there also may exist a lack of confidence in healthcare providers, specifically among the non-white populations. Additionally, the shame, stigma, and silence that generally ensnare the life of one struggling with an eating disorder may prevent them from seeking help, which is partially the goal of this podcast. Many individuals with eating disorders do not initiate treatment for themselves, despite serious physical and psychological health consequences. It is important for each of us to recognize the worth in healing, yet also recognize perhaps troublesome behavior in loved ones. It is also our responsibility to remove barriers to recovery. It's time for someone's voice other than my own. In an article entitled, Black Women Suffer from Eating Disorders Too, Stop Pushing Us Out of Those Conversations, Clarkisha Kent, a Nigerian-American writer and self-proclaimed culture critic writes, quote, my body as a black woman is not allowed to exist as is. Our eating disorders can be one reaction to the messages we've received our whole lives, that our bodies are all wrong. When you're surrounded by constant reminders that the way you look is unwelcome, it's natural to develop anxiety about your body and to fixate on changing it. It's easy to understand why any Black woman might think, as I once did, that the problem could be solved by disappearing." End quote. Let's collectively work to deconstruct our own internalized beauty and thin ideals by examining our implicit biases of certain genders, ages, races, religions, ethnicities, sexual orientations, body shapes and weights as deserving of an eating disorder. If you would like to learn more about what sources I use in the discussion of race-based stereotypes and ED diagnosis and treatment, my citations will be placed in the show notes. Additionally, if you would like to get involved further to work towards positive change and accessibility to ED treatment, I would highly encourage interacting with the nonprofit Project HEAL. 
If you're looking for treatment, you can apply for support through Project Heal's website. Project Heal's mission is to, quote, break down systemic health care and financial barriers to eating disorder treatment, end quote. They are committed to anti-racism, gender equity, fat positivity, and justice-seeking action in ED legislation and treatment modalities. If you are interested, Project Heal offers opportunities to volunteer, partner as a sponsor, and become an ambassador of their mission. A special thanks to one of my favorite people in ED advocates, Aggie LeBeau, for her contribution to the research featured in this week's episode. Next week, HTAL will discuss how an eating disorder may manifest itself at midlife. All new episodes of HTAL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts by 11.59 p.m. each Sunday night if you miss the live broadcast. Feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these sites. If you would like to listen to my own story of anorexia, binge eating, and body dysmorphia, you can listen on any of these platforms. Please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, or those who you feel could specifically benefit. If you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support in recovery and consider seeking treatment. If you feel treatment may be inaccessible to you, please consider seeking support through Project Heal, which is the largest nonprofit in the United States delivering prevention, treatment financing, and recovery support for those struggling. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years, and I didn't think anything would ever be able to come in between that. Treatment did, and treatment does. If you're in a crisis situation, please contact NEDA's helpline by texting NEDA to 741741. HTIL has its very own Instagram and Twitter account, so if you'd like to suggest your own episode topic or interact with the podcast further, please feel free to follow on Instagram at Heavier Than I Look and Twitter at HTIL Podcast. If you are interested in sharing your own story as a feature on the show, please direct message me on Instagram or Twitter. Don't be afraid to reach out. I would love to hear from you. My podcast, Heavier Than I Look, aims to empower survivors, educate listeners, and foster conversations surrounding eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Eating disorders demand silence, yet this podcast is an attempt to de-isolate and destigmatize a survivor's experience by giving a voice to each story. We must abandon a quantitative numerical definition of identity and reclaim our self-definition to exist beyond the numbers that rule our lives. In this way, HDIL is a space of healing, of recovery, and of storytelling. Let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for now. <laughs>